And now we're honored to have Doron Spielman. Anybody who is uh, on, uh, I don't, you probably don't watch, I hope you don't watch CNN or Sky News, but if you watch, <laughs> but if you watch the YouTube videos of Doron handling the Sky News and CNN, um, um, whatever, I don't want to call them journalists anymore, um, we're, it's um, quite amazing. I got to tell Doron that what I ta- when I you know when I connected with him and I found out what he's doing, so I, I was rem- reminded of something I said literally decades ago, and Doron has reversed the problem that I identified. See, the Palestinian spokesman used to get on television and be interviewed, and they would lie through their teeth, and they actually sounded credible. And then the Israeli Dover got on the radio with his mumbling, bumbling English and half sentences, and even I had trouble believing him. <laughs> Baruch Hashem, Doron and his team have reversed that. And if you watch any of the, um, the interviews, I'm going to say Doron knows how to take these guys apart. And part of what I want to hear from him, and I'll ask him a couple of questions, is how did he do it? Okay, and it will ask Doron to come up, may say a few words of introduction, and then maybe I'll ask him a few questions that will elicit some responses. I could barely uh, squeeze in here. Whoever knows the Miluim Nikim that came home were all about 10 kilos heavier from all the, uh, the generous barbecues. Uh, first of all, thank you to the Rabbanim for everything, for the opportunity opportunity to speak tonight, the, the guidance that uh, my wife Sarah and I have taken over the last, uh, around 13 years since I was here, as I mentioned to Rabbi Karlinski, was in this room that uh, we were speaking to Rabbi Karlinski about how your children stay on the derech, and uh, he gave us a little vort and one word, simcha, on Shabbat you have to bring simcha into the family. Now, despite the fact that this Shabbat, my kids, our kids almost tore themselves apart at the table, the, the overall feeling uh, in our home is one of simple. So I think we need another lecture, or maybe we'll send you our kids, but uh, in general, those were, those were great words. Uh, on October 7th, I imagine almost everybody here, if not everybody here, uh, shared part of October 7th. I was in shul. I had a Big, uh, simple story evening. I woke up a little groggy, made my way to shul, put on my talit. And uh, as I put on my talit, someone squeezed my right shoulder. It's a strange feeling when you're putting on a talit. His hand got under my... And I, I looked, and he says, what are you doing here? I, I said, what do you mean, Benny? He's, a, he's the uh, head of uh, law at Hebrew University. I said, what do you mean, Benny? He said, you shouldn't be here. I said, what are you talking about? He said, we've been infiltrated. Israel's been infiltrated. Now, whether it's because I was sleeping deep, my phone was off, a number of other things I didn't know. My son, Nachshon, was with me. He looked up at me. I folded up my talit, and I can say that that was the last Shabbat I had as a normal human being for around maybe 14 weeks, at least for 96 days, whatever that is divided. From that point forward, everything changed for me, like for much of us. Uh, I went home, put on my uniform, like many other people, and uh, the moment my Madim went on, it was just a, a click, and I got on my phone right away, and we immediately connected uh, with my base, 
we weren't sure in the first hours what exactly was happening. I probably had more reports than the average person, but the question was, was I going to go down south right away? Now, to explain what that means, it means getting in my car and going down south. And uh, wisely, that did not happen. Uh, as much as I look back and would like to think that uh, we should have all headed down south, that, that probably would not have worked out very well. And so I went to my base. And in my base, I met with all the other Dovrim, uh, a lot of other people from the Army, and went down into the war center. And that's where we began getting the reports of exactly what was happening. To whatever degree you could understand exactly what was happening. The next morning I woke up early and uh, we felt the area was secure enough that I did go down with one other person. I headed down south. We were in a normal army car, not bulletproof. Head down south. We had two M16s, just two of us. But we knew we had to understand the situation because nobody was reporting back what it looked like. There were reports. We knew something had happened. Lots of people had been killed. And uh, what I saw then, of course, will, will stay with me forever. Things looked normal on your way down south. There were checkpoints. I get right through, major in the Army. And then we drove into Sderot. Now, my daughter did Lumi in Sderot a year ago, so I know Sderot very well. Went into Sderot. It was quiet. And the first sign of the war was as I was driving through Sderot, there was a Jeep parked in the street I had to go around. And as I'm going around it, I look, and there are three bullet holes right through the front window. And I realize, okay, the, the car is just sitting there. And... That was the moment that everything changed. We drove in deeper into Sterot. There were cars that were sprawled all over the roads. And the person and I uh, that I was together with, our job was essentially to try to figure out what we were going to do with the media. How? Are, what is the picture you're even going to explain? And we, everything we see now, we were the first ones down there to try to understand how to unpack this. We drove to the edge of Sterot, which is the road that goes towards the Kibbutzim. And there were just hundreds and hundreds of cars that had were on the sides of the road, one on top of each other, in fields. And we just opened doors and went inside the cars to try to understand what what we're going to show, what happened. And when you open those those doors, nothing had changed except that the bodies had been pulled out at that point. Everything was left. The broken glass, the coolers, the water bottles, the baby bottles, the baby seats with bullet holes in them, blood everywhere all over the cars the names of all the people, the registration put on the seat, because when Zaka took out the bodies, they had to try to ID, so they put out the registration. I went to the police station. Um, I got out and walked around. I actually, that was the first interview I gave. I don't know how he got down there. It was Ralph Sanchez from NBC. We were there. And uh, it, <coughs> things were happening everywhere. There were soldiers everywhere. There was a guy right next to me. The soldiers went and picked him up. He was an old guy. I saw him. Some old guy next to me was like sifting through garbage. It turns out, right next to me, he was from Aza. He had come in with the terrorists and didn't know how to get back. So he was just wandering around. They, they carried him off. And I'll never forget, as I'm interviewing with Ralph Sanchez, I look, we're right in front of the police station. And I'm sorry for the, the gore. But uh, as I'm interviewing, I notice that there is a leg behind him. There's a leg sitting there right behind him. That, that was, those were the first days. One of the cars, it was very strange to put you in our shoes. We went into one of these cars. We're trying to figure out how are we even going to get people down here? Are we going to be able to take them down here? Obviously, we were being hit by mortars the whole time. And I look, and right next to where a bunch of stuff had been taken out of the cars, tons of baby bags and 
backpacks. There were a group of zip ties on the ground. And it, it didn't even dawn on me. I just like was standing on them. And Liad, who was with me, he said, you know, they're zip ties. I said, yeah. He goes, well, obviously these people were taken hostage. You know, right there. I mean, just, it was like putting together the pieces to try to understand it. I went back uh, to base and we reported what had happened. And my commander, uh, who's really an amazing, amazing man, he made an incredible decision. He said, have you ever seen the, the, the vision of Eisenhower when he went to Buchenwald? Now, on April 12th, 1945, General Eisenhower took General Omar Bradley, he took General Patton, he made a really important decision. He took them to Buchenwald and he took press with them. And you can see that to this day. And he walked through Buchenwald with all the bodies sitting there. That's when the world got the view. That was the first time. And he spoke on camera and explained exactly what happened. And because of that, much of the world understood the gravity of the Holocaust, including the Jews. So he said, I want you guys to go down south. And I want you guys to do Eisenhower and Buchenwald. He's like, I don't know what you're going to see in the kibbutzim. But I know right now, no matter what happens, we have to get the press down there. I'll always remember this. He said, I'm going to get a general to meet us down south. He's a general. He has like a small security brigade. And he's going to bring us in. He wasn't connected at all to the fighting. He went around all the bureaucracy. We went down. I took CNN, Sky, Fox, BBC, all the major journalists. And the first thing I showed them was the road with all the cars. And I explained to them, this is the kill zone. This is the road of death. And that became, you know, just came out, we were talking, and this became the road of death in the press. And then uh, we drove into Kfar de Rome, and we were the first people in Kfar de Rome except for the soldiers. And I took them directly to the scene, and it was crazy for us to do this because there were still booby traps. They had left booby traps everywhere. We literally walked into the scene, and my foot's on a table that it was busted on the ground, and the soldier said, lift off your foot, lift up your foot slowly. So I lift up my foot slowly. And he says, look underneath. And I got on the ground, looked underneath. There was a grenade directly under the table that I was standing on. I didn't tell Sarah that. <laughs> and um, we, we walked inside the homes. At this point, you know, we were less careful than we are today. We were just trying to explain the story to get the press on our side. And I lit the press probably do things they shouldn't have done. I, I showed them all the pictures in the fridge. We stood in blood, lots and lots of blood on the ground, and I made them stand on blood. I said, look down. And I said, take the magnet off the fridge. I made them walk and do this. You're here with me? Go take that magnet off the fridge. A few of them were heaving. I mean, there were dead bodies everywhere, so the few of them were heaving, and these were war reporters. Uh, dead bodies, not of Jews, of the terrorists, everywhere. And I said, look at the picture. I said, I want you to remember this in a week when you start asking me the questions. I knew the questions right then were going to be, what can you ask? Even the vast majority of reporters, they have a heart. They're human, most of them. And so I said, I want you to remember this in a week when you ask us why we are fighting in Gaza. And I did that to CNN, Fox, Sky. I made them walk around. I lit them walk around. I said, go, go inside these homes. And that began the series of really what we put together. I'll tell you what I understood very quickly, and then I, I'm happy also to open this up for questions. I've been in a lot of wars in Israel. I've been in almost every war over the last 20 years. I was uh, 
I remember when I was in Chappelle's, I was interviewed on 60 Minutes about something that was happening. It was just after um, the first war in Gaza, the first big war in Gaza, Ofreti Tzuka, Kaslad. And I've drilled on war for the last 20 years with the United States. So I drill on war. It's called Juniper Cobra. You enact a war. And for the last eight years, Juniper Cobra, up until recently, when you act in a war, war was always about the north. But to make it realistic, you had something happening in the south. You always had an infiltration in the south. The last time I did Juniper Cobra, there were there was an infiltration in the south of ten terrorists into a kibbutz that took people hostage. And we were looking at this and rolling our eyes because we said, come on, that can't happen. That was the military position. That actually, it can't really happen. Ten terrorists will send in Sarah Makal because we were used to a paradigm that is that has really changed. The paradigm was that you either had a small amount of terrorists or in the event of 9-11, you had a small amount of terrorists which with enormous assets, meaning all of 9-11 happened from 22 people. And they managed to hijack four large assets, which are passenger planes. Now, Israel is ready for that kind of situation of large assets. That's what we are ready for. That's what much many people in the world are ready for. By the way, that's why we have our entire defensive dome project. Right? We see that they're shooting at us cruise missiles from, from Yemen. And we're all sitting here and eating lunch and going about our business. There are cruise missiles being shot at Israel. I remember, I knew about those cruise missiles before anybody knew about those cruise missiles. And I was walking down, they were on their way when I knew about them. And I was walking down the street, I think it was in Tel Aviv, near my base, thinking, wow, all these people don't realize there are cruise missiles on their way to us right now. It's a cruise missile. Because we have planned for these major assets. However, and this I explained to the press and a lot of people in the, in the U.S. government who came, this is a different form of terrorism. This is a large number of terrorists with almost no assets. This is a tidal wave of terrorism. And unfortunately, we were the ones to experience it, and it is a great warning to the rest of the world because it overwhelmed, with all the mistakes that we made and that were there, the bottom line is they overwhelmed our defenses. So much of the world is based today on the idea that you'll have a small number of terrorists with large assets. But what if, in France, a 1,000 people get together? that are armed. Or, God forbid, in the United States, they come out of Dearborn, Michigan, where I'm from, and a hundred people, a hundred terrorists go to a shul, or a hundred terrorists go to the, you know, Piston Stadium, whatever it is. That is something the world's not ready for because it makes you, really causes you to make very difficult choices. But that's what happened to us on the 7th. We were actually the very first people to experience a new form of terrorism. As, uh, as expected, the press did change the way that they spoke. And uh, it happened mostly with the hospital, when they thought that we hit the hospital. And, of course, we didn't hit the hospital. And I'm arguing with CNN live about the hospital. And then, of course, the next day I'm arguing with CNN about the hospital. And, and I'm explaining. I said, well, you don't need – they're saying, well, they say. I said, well, I'm not saying what they said or I said. I just want to show you the pictures that Al Jazeera put up. So don't look at me, look at Al Jazeera. But that's really when the tone changed, simply because people like Jews, Lo'elenu, Rob said about Benjamin, people like Jews as long as we are being killed. People don't like Jews 
who stand up for them and defend themselves. As a matter of fact, people don't under, even understand who the Jewish people are. We have a problem understanding who the Jewish people are. We don't even remember what, when we think of Moshe Rabbeinu, do we think of a great warrior? Well, he was. There are reports he killed Sichon by himself. Do we think of Yoshua as a commander? David Melech, obviously. Rabbi Kiva was a rabbi of war, with everything he gave to us, supporting war. Down through the line, when it came to Bait Sheni, the entire world were dearly afraid of the Jewish people. No one, and I worked in Yerdavid for many years, as many people here know, held off Roman armies, legion after legion, like the Jewish people, but even by us it atrophied. And the world, as long as the Jews are kind of coming out of the Holocaust, or it's October 7th, the world has a little bit of rachamim. As soon as we stand up, everything changed. Now what happened was, we didn't only stand up. We, the world was fooled and we were fooled. Because of the judicial reform that happened before the war. The world and Hamas thought that Israel was over. That's it, they're fighting. Like, these are the Jewish people, they're warring in the streets. Again, they were looking for blood, because if it was any other country, there would have been blood. With everything that happened here, there was no, no one was killed. It's a miracle. Just take a step back. Hundreds of thousands of people protesting no blood. But even we, internally, were of the mind, what's going to happen with our country? Now, what happened on October 7th, which all of us in this room feel, if anybody lives in Israel, is the burst of power and strength that has come out of our country is not only felt by us, it's felt by the world. It is a it is an awesome awakening of the line of Yudah. That's happening right now. It is not by chance. When I went in the army, everyone was cramming in. I literally archived almost every person I knew because everyone wanted to go in the army. Can you get me in this unit? Can you get me in that unit? I couldn't. I was in my own unit. So many people reached out to me. Because the, the energy level, and it's still here. People like Benjamin. I see these guys in Gaza and these women, and, and they're ferocious. Ferocious. And by the way, you should know, people ask me, are we winning? I'm jumping around a bit here, but it's a, a question in everybody's mind. On the 7th of October, with all of the devastation and the tragedy that happened, as soon as we galvanized our soldiers and we were in a confrontation and we engaged with the enemy, in every single case, they were no match for us at all. In every single case in Gaza, they're no match for us at all. The dear price we're paying is a price that probably no other army has paid in terms of how painful but low the numbers are. The number of armed terrorists that we are killing that have been preparing for this for 16 years and have 400 miles of tunnels underneath the ground and a lot of weapons, which I've seen that come from North Korea and Russia. And so we are winning. That's what all of our soldiers say. Just let us actually finish the job. The... The question that the rabbi asked me on the phone, which is, you mentioned it here, is, okay, how do I handle the journalists? It's a a question I get a lot. How do I handle all of these journalists? I have to know two things. What is their goal and what is my goal? Their goal, in general, is to turn me into an unfeeling, tough soldier who is out there killing Gazans. It is to dehumanize. Now, how do they do that? They make you get angry. That's it. It's all, it's that simple. It doesn't matter who you're speaking to. It can be Sky, BBC, anyone else. Their goal is, one, they want to offend you inside so that you get angry, so that you look like you fall directly into that dehumanizing Israeli soldier. Now, you can be the smartest guy in the world, and you have to be sharp to be a spokesman. There's no question. In order to take them apart, if, you're not, if you don't have it, you don't have it. 
It's just uh, unfortunately because I'd like there to be a lot more people that have it. But when it when you have to be smart, but you have to do more. You have got to understand always what is happening inside that person and what's happening inside of you. And that is actually what makes a good a good a, a very good spokesperson because they're trying to dehumanize you. And your enemy is not them. Your enemy is yourself. Because they're saying things that are deeply offensive. Because you know your people are dying. You know people who've died. The neighbor across the street, this one and that one. And they will not even mention this. They'll just talk about the children of God as if you're the worst person in the world. And what do you think? I'm not. I'm not the worst person in the world. And you're angry. Why are you saying I'm the worst person in, in the entire world? And that's what you have to contend against. But you have to know your goal. And this is how... This is what I meditate on along with my colleagues, and it's hard to do because you're doing interviews up until 5 in the morning, and you're down south, and you're up north, and there are bombs falling and everything else. And so they put you on top of trucks to interview. I mean, they'll do what they can to shake you up. At, at the bottom line, what every person, you really have got to be able to hold on to your emet of what the Jewish people are at the end of the day. You have got to be able to hold on to the idea that you are justified, and not only that. You then have to look at the millions of people on the other side of the camera. And you have to understand that this person standing in front of me, he's a robot. There are millions of people on the other side eating Doritos out of a bag (laughs) in Washington, D.C., or sitting in the Congress or wherever else, and they're looking at you. And they're looking at you for entertainment. And they're standing back, they're outside, they're having a, a visceral experience, but they have forgotten themselves, and they're watching. And they're watching you through the eyes of that interviewer. So they're, but they're not in. They're not, they're not doing a cheshbon nefesh. You're entertainment. They're feeling it from the eyes of the interviewer. And what you have to do is you've got to reach every single one of those people and make them think that if they were in your position, they would do exactly the same thing. That's it. That's the whole job of a spokesperson, is to look at those millions of people and speak in such a way. You have to be sharp. You have to know how to turn things around. But you've got to be human so that for just a second, while they're sitting there at their dinner tables in the United States, and I say that because it's uh, by far and away the most important population that we need to impact, for one second they say, wow. They look over at their daughter, and they're like, you know what, I would do the exact same thing. That's it. If you can, if you can manage for that to happen, then you've, you hope you've won. How many do that? You don't know. The fact that you know it's great to think that because of the the spokespeople, that's why America is so solidly with Israel. And the American people are solidly with Israel. If you look at all the polls, seventy percent of Americans stand with Israel. Sixty-five percent of them don't think we should stop fighting. So I mean, America is very strongly standing with us, but. That is the challenge that we are always up against. How to get the person on the other side to actually for a second realize that, listen, I'm fighting for my family. And that was the message that I gave in almost every interview. They came at me with every single question in the book and every single visual. And some of them are very challenging because they often know things that we don't know. And they're going to reports from inside of Gaza that we don't know if they're true or not true. And those kids, I don't know if any of you saw this, being marched in their underwear across the football field. So I'm live, right? I'm live. If anyone saw this, they're terrorists being marched, and they're little kids. There are little kids in that group. And, you know, they pull it right up. Now I'm the first person to see it. I'm live. They're like, we want to show you something that just happened in Gaza. Now what am I going to say? I could say to them, no comment. I've never said that in my entire life. And uh, I'm looking at this, and I'm, you know, 
it's crazy. These little, I don't know, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds. And all I said, and this was the, the only line, and this was the truth. First of all, I said, obviously, it's horrible to see anybody being marched in their underwear, and I explained why. But I said, I have a question for you. Why are there 13- and 14-year-olds in northern Gaza right now hanging out with terrorists? And that was it. That was the only, like, when, as soon as you put it back, and I said, I actually want to know. Can you, can you get a report from the field? Why are they with, because all those other people are Hamas. Why are there 13 year olds walking with, marching with Hamas? And then you see, they lose their, and then I can kind of move forward and shift to, uh, but that's what you have. You have feeling. You have to kind of go back to basics and, uh, try to unpack what you're seeing, because it's an enormous amount of deception, because they're trying again to dehumanize you. And that is, that's a chessboard. But I will say something, and I'm, I'm happy to open this up for, for questions. One thing that I've hung on to during this entire war is, uh, is Shoftim, Perk Bet, which is about Yiftach. You look at Yiftach, and it's, it's incredible. Yiftach is a dover. You open up Yiftach, and right away you have Melech Ammon, Starts a war against Yiftach, and Yiftach sends him a letter. Why, why are you fighting me? What did we do to you? And he said, no, you guys stole our land. You guys stole our land. It's amazing. It's right out of Yiftach. And uh, you took our land, and we want our land back, and that's why we're fighting. Right? Yiftach writes another letter. He says, no, we did not take your land. When we were coming out of Egypt, we were going from nation to nation to nation. We asked Sihon if we could go through his land. And Sihon says, no, you cannot go through my land, and he fought us. And when he fought us, it's incredible the parallels here, he launched an attack on us, and we took over Sichon's land. And that's why we have this land. And then he says, he goes, and by the way, why have you not brought this up for 300 years? Like, if you had such a claim to the land. It's, it's amazing, the Dovrut. And then, he, and then he says, you're just like Balak. Right? You're just here to just try to pull us into war. And then he kills him. Right? He goes and he, and he, and he actually kills them. Which is what he's supposed to do. But, but the real question is, who's Yiftach speaking to? Alright. He's gonna convince Melchamon. He's not speaking to Melchamon. He's speaking to us. At the end of the day, 3,000 years later, Jewish people are still here. We're fighting for our lives. North, south, east and west. The question really is, who are we speaking to? What is all this for? My hope is, is that there are Jews in America, Jews here, that if I can do anything, and I think that's the ultimate goal of anyone fighting in the army, whether you're a spokesman or anywhere else, it's to strengthen the resolve of Israel. It's that these messages will be remembered by our children, their children's children. Why, when there was a Naseva Nishma, not only in this Parsha, but on October 7th, why the Jewish people came out in such number, did not ask for details, but flocked to defend their country in the midst of a huge crisis of the judicial reform. But I'm hoping there's some Jew in North America that's like, you know, maybe a college kid It's trying to figure this out. And that that will trigger something in them and understand why we are who we are. So then they can come and learn at Madrasha Rachel or, you know, Chappelle's. And uh, that's the ultimate That's the ultimate message, I think, is that uh, as long as we're doing mitkavnim le'emet, hopefully, if we have any chance of committing the Gentiles, it's not going to be by saying sorry, it's not going to be by apologizing, it's not going to be by giving in. They're expecting Am Yisrael to do what we do. Not only is that the only way I think we will ever get through to the Gentiles, it's also the only way we're ever going to get through to the Jews. And so that's the scoot I was giving on October 7th. I want to just...
had a comment that I just came to me while I'm hearing Doron. We know that to win this war, we have two pieces. There's the soldiers fighting, and there's the Torah and tefillah that we're giving. And I realize there's a third piece here, and that is the spokesman, because they are definitely a major role in how we're going to win this war. So I want to give a yeshua call. Um, I have one question, then I'll open it up for a few minutes. How do you defend the government when the policies are things that don't make any sense? Humanitarian that's a, that's a aid when there's hostages. Turn off your phones. No. I'll be, I'll be careful. I'll be careful. I told you I would push on the spot. is a good question. The rabbi, I learned, I learned Gemara with Rabbi Karlinsky, and you haven't lost the rabbi. This is <laughs> right to the heart of it. At the end of the day, I realize that I am a link in a process. And what is the process? The moment we go to war, a timer starts on a clock. Unfortunately, this is the way we are today. That timer will be thrown away when we really realize who we are. It starts, and when it gets to the whole cycle, back to zero, we stop. Now, what is that zero? It's when the United States tells us to stop. Now, that has been the paradigm of Israel for the last, really since Nixon, but let's try to narrow it down, certainly the last 20 years. For the most part, it's not that we do every single thing America asks, and we have incredible chutzpah against America I've seen in closed meetings, which is always surprising. But in general, the way that we think of things is, okay, are the Americans going to let us fight? Now, I am against that completely. But that is how Israel has postured itself. That is why when the reports come out about October 7th, this war was not even about the South on October 7th. The war on October 7th was what could have happened in the North. What could have happened in the North in Israel makes the South pale in comparison. Because of our reliance upon the United States and situations that we had been put in, which will become clear in the next few months, had Hezbollah attacked in the North on October 7th, had this been coordinated, we would have a very different country right now and we would be in a very different situation. Because Hezbollah have 180,000 rockets, 150,000 are precision-guided missiles, PGMs. Which means they can hit an orange peel sitting on the roof of Chappelle's. And therefore, everything that we have compiled would could very be, easily be overwhelmed and we were missing a lot of the things we should have. And that's really, actually, that is that is the real story. But my job is to cause that ticker to slow it down on its route. And Israel says that, how do I do that? I have to engage the world in what the world's public opinion is so that the United States president and Blinken will give us as much time as possible. And the way to do that is by making a difference. Now, there is a difference. I don't believe that a three-month-old baby in Gaza is a Hamas terrorist. And I focus on that when I say it, by the way. That I'm seeing these little kids. I'm seeing the three-month-old kids. But I know that by saying it, and it's not that it's not true, it is true, but then I'm glossing over the fact that a lot of people in Gaza are, are terrorists. I am buying time on that clock for the paradigm that we are in right now. But I will say, in my opinion, that clock should be thrown away, and I believe that the next generation of leadership is going to do that. I really do. I have hope for the next generation of leadership. They're going to throw away that clock, and the only clock is going to be the Torah, and what is our conscience? We have time for two questions. We'll take one from the men and one from the women.
Okay, Doug, you were first. So, uh, do you mean um, you have access to, you know, 100 people here who are also spokespeople for Israel? Yep. Give us a little guidance or coaching because sure. they were a little lost when you put it You know, I'm asked that question a lot by groups such as lots of groups that want to know what they can do and what they can say. And there's a lot to do and a lot to say. But I want to be a little bit more honest here because I feel like I'm with uh, a family, even though a lot of us don't know each other and we're we're Torah Jews. And I think, uh, you know, we need to speak absolutely the truth. On October 7th, there was a, as I said, a Nase Benishma. We have seen people sacrificing everything. Bedouin, Druze, Sfardim, Ashkenazim. One of the biggest questions is going to be, where are the Haredim in this story? Where are they? This burst of unity that has taken place in the land of Israel, there's a story of the, the lion that has been unleashed, unity from every single quarter, the question is going to be asked, and I feel like Haredim are going to need to ask that question of themselves, what is our role? Where are we standing in the unity of the Jewish people? And even more than that, what is our sacrifice? There's an enormous sacrifice that's taking place. And this is the Torah of Israel. We hold the Torah of Israel. And I think that Chappelle's actually is in a very interesting place. As Rob said, there's a mishmash in this room of different people. Haredi, Haredi American, Yeshivish, I don't know how you define it. But, at the end of the day, you really want to make a difference? That is the area that we need to make a difference in. I'm not talking about having the state come and give ultimatums to the Haredi, and you're going to do Giyush, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. I'm talking about proactivism on top on, on behalf of the Haredi population in Israel. You see what's happening? You see the cost being paid? You see that people... They just extended my service, right? My kids to three years. Your kids, some of your kids. Miluim now to 45 instead of 40. People dying. People, you see it right here. What is the role of the Haredim? That cannot be delayed in thinking it's going to go away. It can be coming from a, we can turn this from a potential Chilul Hashem to an enormous Kiddush Hashem. But it has got to come from the Haredi world with clear answers and a clear step how they are going to sacrifice, and how they are going to give. So that is honestly, if I'm standing in front of this room, what I think is the real question that needs to be answered. Question from the women. Yep. Um, I assume that like, there's like a group of questions that gets asked very often, and a group of answers that gets given very often from Israeli advocates. What's the question that you really wish you could change that answer So what's the question that I wish I could change the answer? Uh, yeah, I have, I have that. Thank you for asking that. That's great. Wow. It, it, it has to do with everything, not only this war. There's a basic question and a, a, a posture that is made that we are colonialists and we have stolen land. Right? First Rashi and Breshid, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, right? That Rashi, that's what he opens with. And the answer often is, we build cell phones, your 
technology cell phones. Jews create cures for the world. We share our technology. And that's all true. We do great things for the world. We develop vaccines. We, we you know, Corona was tried out on, on Israel and Jewish doctors. But that does not answer the question when somebody is saying you stole our land. It will never, ever answer the question. And that is why Israel advocacy is doomed unless it changes. Because you cannot stand up in front of 25 to 35 year olds, isn't that what I'm talking about, and answer with when the other side is saying that you've stolen our land. To tell you that I know how to exactly phrase the answer, I'm not sure, but I think that the answer is really one of action and one of position, and that every Jew cannot be afraid and apologize for what we are in this country. Any attempt to answer that with technology is not correct. At the end of the day, I worked in Ear for 21 years, and I'm about to finish a book on what I think is that answer. But every person has got to know, you grab a Palestinian off the street, every one of them has a son or daughter that's tied as a shaheed, every one of them, their home was destroyed, every one of them lived in Haifa, they are part of a national drama. Every one of them. You pull two Jews off the street, we know what happens. You get 20 answers. But when we really dig in and we know our history, and we know that we have a right to be here, and we speak about, this goes back to the Avot, that's the truth. We have to be able to say it. We've been here for 4,000 years. That's really the answer. We were forced out of this country 2,000 years ago by the Romans. We, every day, plan to come back to this country. I really believe at the end of the day, it may not sound that great, but that's all that's going to win. And when Jews truly get behind that answer, because we all know we're not here today because of 1948, not because of the UN. We're here because Avram Avinu, Moshe, who didn't manage to get here, David Melech and everybody else, and when we understand that Nam Yisrael answers in one voice, that will be the answer. How exactly to make that happen? That is a big task. I'm not sure how to get everyone to answer that question. Thank you. Thank you.